It's where we are going to be spending the majority of our time. Such an excellent uh, part of scripture we get to look at. It has a lot of really amazing truths. We're basically going to use that and deal with most of the things that are uh, spoken about there. It's it's a very rich text, so we can't deal with all of it, but we're going to deal with mainly that in that part of the text that is prevalent to what we're going to be dealing with uh, here. Uh, last week, if you weren't with us, we started a new series called The Solas. Um, the word sola is a Latin word for alone. And the idea was that at a historical period of time called the Reformation, just a couple years ago, we celebrated 500 years since that period of time. Um, during that historical period, um, many people got together and in looking at scripture determined five ways alone that we determine who God is and how he would save fallen humanity. Those five alones we started last week with scripture alone. Today we're dealing with grace alone and the other three that we'll deal with in the weeks following are faith alone, Christ alone, and God's glory alone. And those uh, were developed in a historical period, like I said, called the Reformation, which is usually credited with the beginning of that period is credited to a man named Martin Luther. I think most of you have probably heard of Martin Luther. And if you've ever heard about him or read about him, he seems to be like this hero of the Christian faith, this man who was courageous and bold. And through him and through the conviction that he saw in scripture, went up against the church at that time, the established church, the Roman Catholic church, and the head of that church, the Pope, in a way to bring common people and actually as a consequence, the whole world, the real truth about how it is that men are saved by God. And if you study Martin Luther, I think the natural assumption that you might have is that Martin Luther was born this very heroic person. He was an amazing guy in his character from the day he was born all the way until the amazing things he did. And he must have had to be the guy. God needed a guy like him to be able to do all that stuff. Um, but if you actually look at Martin Luther and, and trace his life, he was very much not that person. He was a very ordinary person like yourself or like myself. Um, and actually, even more than that, was a, a person who would be fair to characterize his life as a person who was terrified by God, a person who was terrified by God. And I can give you a couple of very easy illustrations of that case. Um, very, very quickly, when we began our series last week, I told you that Martin Luther became a monk uh, after having this very, what he saw, supernatural salvation from a lightning storm. And in that lightning storm, when he was walking home from, at that time, he was studying to be a lawyer, walking home from school, he was caught in this storm and he was so certain he was going to die. And amidst that storm, he actually cried out, St. Anne, save me, and I'll become a monk. And there's a reason that he cried out for St. Anne. St. Anne was basically, uh, from what I've come to understand, the mother of Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, and Jesus is the one who speaks to the Father. And the reason, that's all in Roman Catholic theology at the time. The reason that Martin Luther called out to St. Anne is because he was terrified to call out to God himself. And because he was so terrified, he actually called out to the mother of, the mother of Jesus, who then intercedes with the Father. He was so terrified, he had to call to a person who could talk to a person who could talk to a person who could talk to God. 
And the reason for that was because he was so terrified of the fact that he was a sinner and that how would it be that a sinner could ever speak directly to God? And that fear followed him all the way when he became a monk and past when he was a monk, when he became a teacher in the Roman Catholic Church in a college and even in his normal priestly duties as a Roman Catholic person. And if you're like me, when I say priestly duties, you think of Nacho Libre. What we're talking about is an actual priest having actual priestly duties. And in that time, he was actually so terrified of his sin that he would go to the confession booth daily. Um, Priests at that time, high-ranking priests, would pray to God for you to have your sin forgiven. And the only time in Martin Luther's day that he felt okay about his sin was when he went to a confession booth and he just lashed out every single sin he could possibly think of to this priest who would then confess to God for him. And the only relief he ever had was leaving that booth and feeling this freedom that finally I'm right with God. But that would only last a couple of minutes before he remembered another sin that he had committed against God, and he would run right back to the confession booth, much to the frustration of the priest in the confession booth, and he would say another sin. And so Martin Luther's life was totally characterized by an idea that God's attitude towards him constantly was one of anger and maybe even hatred because he was a sinner. And so the question that's interesting historically to consider is how did that guy get to a place where he was transformed from such thinking to the fact that he not only loved God and was so relieved in salvation, not only that he would become a Christian and embrace God as God desired to be embraced, but that he would be so bold as to go up against the Roman Catholic Church and go up against the Pope. How could that terrified guy be so bold to do all that? And really the answer to that is the doctrine that we're studying today, which is the doctrine of being saved by grace alone. The understanding of grace is that grace means a free gift. That when we say that we're saved by God alone, what we mean is that salvation needs to be not something earned from God, but it needs to start with God giving it to us. That's what all of this kind of starts with, and that's what we need to study today, that gaining salvation as a free gift can only be from a God who desires to give us salvation. And as we study that, what we need to really do, just very simply, is take an honest look at ourselves, sinners who want to be saved, and then we need to take an honest look about how God says his attitude is towards those sinners. Very simple. We need to see who we are as sinners, honestly, and then God's attitude towards us, as the expression goes, warts and all, exactly as we are. And Ephesians does that very well. So the first thing we need to do is look at Ephesians in verse 1 to verse 3. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 3, and see who it is if we take an honest look about what it means to be a sinner. And then we can start to consider if God would be gracious to save that kind of sinner. So Listen with me or read with me as we go through Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 3, which says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature 
children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In three verses, you can see there's a lot of words there, and it's hard to deal with all of them. And so maybe the easiest way that we could sum up these three verses is to answer this question. What are three words that could sum up what it means to be a sinner? If we had three words to sum up everything that it means and is defining a sinner, what it means to be a sinner, what would those three words be? And all these words need to basically be taken directly from what this text is talking about. And the first word that describes a sinner is the word dead. Chapter two, verse one says, we were dead. Now, when we think dead, we think like me being passed out on the ground with no heartbeat um, and all of you guys just awkwardly staring at me as I kind of just lied there, knowing that I'm not going to do anything. And what we mean by dead isn't just a physical deadness. Actually, the very next word that he says in verse two is that you once walked. So when we mean dead, we mean you are doing something, but almost like a zombie, that we are walking dead people. And the word dead basically is trying to give us the, the idea of inactivity. There is a way we are supposed to be living, and we're not living like that because we're incapable of living like that. And the way that we should be living that we are not because we're incapable of living that way, is living for God's glory. God created us to live for his glory, but because of the way we are by nature, the way that we are born, we are incapable. We are dead in that sense. There's a very, very helpful passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, that says, talking about sinners, that we are alienated from the life of God. If you think of an alien, obviously you're thinking of someone in a spaceship coming to take us up in a spaceship, but the idea really is just foreignness, something totally different. And the way we live life is so totally different from the way that we are supposed to live life that we are said to not only be alien, but we are dead. We are incapable of not being aliens. And if you wonder the reason why that is the case, Ephesians 4.18 actually says that as well. It says because we are hard in heart. The reason we can't live for God's glory is because our hearts are not beating the way they're supposed to be beating. They are hearts explained in the book of Ezekiel of stone. They're inactive. They are unresponsive. No matter what kind of stigma or data or information we are giving, we can't revive ourselves to a kind of understanding that God is supposed to be glorified. And if you're asking, how is it that we can switch that situation that we cannot be dead and start living, can we do that ourselves? The answer is no, in the same way that a dead person can't raise themselves to life. And it's not just because we're incapable, it's because of the next word that describes a sinner. And that's not only that we're dead, but we're enslaved. We are people who are enslaved. The words following are used twice in verse two. And verse three has the word lived. And the reason that we are going through life with this kind of attitude, it's because we are doing what our hearts want to do. Our hearts are dead to living for God's glory, but they're alive to live for our own glory. Everything that we do is being done for the sake of someone else's glory. And that glory is ourselves. 
we are enslaved to the idea that everything about my life is supposed to be for myself. And we were not designed to live for ourselves. But from the very moment we are born, everything about this life changes from the lens of being for God and instead being for us. Even in this world, as it explains here, that we lived in this world, following the course of this world, the understanding is that this environment is one of sin, and we are very, very comfortable being in that environment, and it doesn't paint a very good picture. If you think of something like a swamp, I don't think unless you're Shrek, nobody wants to really live in a swamp, but lots of things do actually like to live in a swamp. You have fungus, you have mushrooms, they actually thrive in that environment. And we don't want to think of ourselves like this, but what this text is saying is that if you are a sinner, you are thriving in this environment. Everything about this life is saying it's for you. Even Nike and Burger King saying, have it your way. All of that is feeding a kind of appetite that we have for our own glory, and we are perfectly comfortable with that. The way that the Bible explains this, because God is light, if we are not living for his glory and living for our own, we are then living in darkness. And we are comfortable living in darkness. John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20 says that this is our condemnation, that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light or else his deeds will be exposed. Best illustration I could have, embrace yourself if you're not a bug person. I'm not a bug person. I have no joy in using this illustration, but the best way to explain this, sinners loving darkness, is thinking of cockroaches. I hope you've never been in this situation, but if you've ever been in a house that's not very clean or a cottage that's not very clean, I have before, I've been at retreats that were not really in the best condition of places where you're sleeping. And I've woken up at night and gone into another dark room where the restroom is and I've turned on the light and there's cockroaches. And the first thing that happens is as soon as the light goes on, they all scatter in different directions and they start looking for someplace dark. And it is not fun to be in that situation. But that's exactly the way that God is describing us here. It is unappetizing. It is ungood to look at. There's nothing about it that makes us feel good in any kind of sense, but that is the case, that we are not only trapped in darkness and dead in darkness, but we are comfortable with darkness. And because of that, the third word that describes sinners is we're not only dead, we're not only enslaved, but the reality is we are also condemned. That word is taken from verse three that says that we are children of wrath. The fact that us being dead and enslaved in sin, us being incapable of glorifying God and not wanting to glorify God is not something God is indifferent to. He very much sees it and very much cares because that is not the way that he designed us to function. And because of that, we are, from the moment we are born, people who should experience the wrath of God, the right wrath of God. We talked about many times in the Minor Prophets that if God is a good God, he must be this way. If he hates evil and we are evil, he must punish us or else he's not a good judge and not a good God. 
And this is the situation that every single sinner is in, that we are dead, that we are enslaved, and that we are condemned. And then Paul adds this at the end of that whole explanation. He says that sinners are children of wrath. And then he adds, like the rest of mankind. Now, why does he say like the rest of mankind? The reason is because there are people who think that because they have the information of the gospel, that means they are saved. And what he is saying is you might think your sin isn't as bad as lots of other people, but you are wrong. The fact is that you are not a sinner because you do a lot of sin. We might think when we leave the church and we look at lots of different people, we say they are definitely sinners, but I'm not like them, so I can't be condemned like they would be. That is dead wrong thinking. If we are by nature sinners, we're not sinners just because of the stuff we do. The Bible explains that the stuff we do just exposes our natures. The best way to say it is we don't just sin, we're not sinners because of our sin. Our sin is just more proof and more evidence that we are already sinners. The point is that it doesn't matter whether we go to church or we know scripture in terms of salvation. Even you just knowing the gospel, even me telling you all of this stuff, that doesn't make you saved. That doesn't make you a Christian. The reality is that this is supposed to expose the fact that we are incapable of saving ourselves. And you aren't supposed to just know that, you're supposed to feel that. I don't know if you've ever been incapable of doing something. I don't know if you've ever looked at a test and been like, I'm incapable of getting an A. I don't know if you've ever been with a group of friends and you're like, I am incapable of becoming good friends with these people. It's not a good feeling. But have you ever been incapable in a life-threatening situation? I can think of many times because I've done a lot of stupid things, but I can think of one time in particular where this hit me, which is when I was about six years old. I had a group of friends, actually my best friend, who had a birthday party, and all of us as like six and seven-year-olds who grew up in the same neighborhood were invited to go with him to the public pool, the aquatic center. And we went there and we were with his dad in the shallow end of the pool and we were just playing in the water. And I became fascinated with the fact that the wave machine was turned on in the aquatic center. And I started going out to kind of feel the waves pick me up from the ground and kind of move me. And it was fun as a six-year-old. But I remember going further and further out until the realization hit me that a wave had pulled me up and then it brought me back down. And my feet could not hit the ground anymore. I got pushed out into the water very, very close to where the wave machine started. And because I got older, I knew the height of me and my head hitting the water was about twice the height of the pool. It was about two of me tall if I was ever going to hit the ground. And I remember in my little six-year-old brain, the moment where it hit me, if my friend's dad does not see me now, I am going to drown. There is absolutely no way that I can get out of the situation unless he sees me. And obviously I'm here. He actually did see me, but actually went into the water first and was feeling the feeling of drowning before he actually grabbed me out of the water, picked me up, put me over his shoulder, 
and went back. But I remember that feeling to this day. And when Paul is explaining the situation of being a sinner, that's the kind of feeling we're supposed to have. That you can't know this, you have to feel it in your heart if something is not provided for me. If someone doesn't go out of their way to save me, I am doomed. I am done for. And the more that we see our situation, it's not just that we're incapable, it's also that we are unlovely. It's one thing for my friends to go and save, my friend's dad rather, to come and save me as a six-year-old boy. It's another thing for him to want to go out there and save a human-sized cockroach. It's not just we need to be saved, but we also recognize that we are unlovely in God's eyes, having nothing in us that is beautiful or worthy of being saved. And so we're kind of doubled down in the situation of figuring out what's going to happen to me. We are dead, we are enslaved, and we are condemned. That's us, chapter 2 and you. That is every single person who's ever been born in this world. That's you, that's me, regardless of how much of that sin comes out of us. Any sin that comes out of us means that we are condemned to the same punishment as the worst sinner we could imagine. That is us, chapter 2, verse 1, and you. And then verse 4 comes in and says, but God. Verse 1 says, and you, and verse 4 says, but God. God is going to break into this situation and explain something about himself that we desperately need to know. He says, but God. But God what? Verse 4 says, but God has a great love for sinners. Verse 4 and 5 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God is explaining he has a great love for sinners, even in our deadness and even in our enslavement. And so he has expressed that love for us through granting us mercy. Our sin proves we're sinners, but in God's mercy, he is proving his love. And that love is manifested so greatly in not just showing us his love, but making us experience his love in salvation as a gift. The point of that love is to be experienced in such a way that you recognize that this God has come for you. We would think that love would have its motivation to save us. That kind of love would be met in the way that we are good, that we are lovely. The result is that God says he has a great love for us, but it's 100% not found in us. In fact, it couldn't be found in us. We recognize that. We are unlovely and we are dead. There's nothing appealing about a corpse, but God's love, he's explaining, is totally unlike our love. Listen to this quote from John Owen. I'm going to quote from him a couple times, and he's very, very helpful to explain something like this. John Owen says this, that the love of God is like himself. What does that mean, that the love of God is like himself? 
It means that God's love is equal, constant, and incapable of changing in size or amount. But our love is like ourselves. What does that mean? Our love being like ourselves means that it is, it's my place, it is unequal, it is increasing, it is waning, it is growing, and it is declining. His love, that's God's love, is like the sun. It's always the same in its light, even though sometimes a cloud may be in the way. But our love is like the moon. It is something enlarged. It is something reduced. Was there ever a time and a place that our love was equal towards God? John Owen is very helpful in explaining that God's love is always the same. However big or small it is, it is always at that level, but our love always changes. If you want an example of this, consider this. When have you changed your opinion of your love for somebody? When have you said, I love that person? What happens that changes that? What happens is they prove themselves to be unlovely. If you have a best friend and you find out tomorrow that they start gossiping about you, do you love them the same as before you learned they gossiped? The answer is no. A normal person hearing that the best friend that they love so much is gossiping against them is to love them less. Think about your family. We would say, well, I always love my family the same. Well, do you show that love always the same? Imagine you do something you know is wrong. And you talk to your parents and you guess that they're going to ground you for a week. And instead, they ground you for three months. How much of that three months in your room or however grounding works in your family, how much of that three months is going to be spent in bitterness to your parents, in frustration to your parents, maybe even in anger to your parents? See, our hearts will change their love for someone based on what they do to us. Almost always, God's love is not like that. In fact, God's great love for us is shown so graciously as a free gift for us that that gift was freely given for us when we were at our worst. When we were at our most unlovely, most ungracious, that is when God says he still loved us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And two verses later in Romans chapter 5 verse 10, it says, while we were his enemies. Now he's clarifying, we weren't just sinners. We weren't just dead and enslaved. We were his enemies. We were against everything that he stands for. But still he says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. When we were totally against God and everything he stood for, he not only reconciled us, he made things right, but then he saved us from the condemnation that we should have justly deserved. One pastor named Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, which I think is helpful. That the Father does not love us because we are sinners, but he loves us even though we are sinners. The fact is that he loved us before Christ died for us. I think it's so easy for us to think that the gospel message is that Christ died for us and then God loved us. 
that everything was done for us. And then we accept that. And then he loved us. But the reality is that is totally not the case with God. When you experience salvation, the rush of excitement that comes to you is not only that God loves you and you're unlovely and he changes you to be unlovely. That's not the case. We will always have some form of sin happening in our lives. You don't become perfect when you become saved. But the beauty of that moment is that God's free gift of salvation in his grace to you came because he loved you before Christ died for you. In fact, it is because Christ died for you that is the evidence of his love before that sacrifice took place. God loved you before you were saved. He loved you and came and then saved you. And then he loves you until the end of your life in which your salvation will be revealed in this. Verse 6, that you will be raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. That means his love continues past death and stays with you for eternity. That is the realization of the grace of God because of his attitude towards you being only in love. And that love is so great that he didn't just love you when you were unlovely, but he loved you when you were unresponsive. When you were someone who would never ever change your idea about God unless he did something for you. Romans chapter 1 verse 30 says many, many things about sinners. But Romans chapter 1 verse 30 says this, that sinners are, by definition, haters of God. Remember that God's not like us and his love is not like us. Even though we by nature are haters of God, he explains in the Bible that he is a lover of men. That God's desire is for men's salvation. John Owen again puts it this way, that God's love goes before ours. The father loves the child even when the child does not know the father, much less love him. Surely all mutual love between God and us must begin in his hand. What an amazing picture of grace that is. That two parents who have a baby who hasn't even realized what it is, let alone where life is at, that those parents would love it and is gracious to it. It doesn't do anything for them. And one day it will recognize the love of the parents and maybe it'll respond in love back. Before that's the case, the parents still loved and provided for and cherished that baby. And that is like God with us. Even before you were saved, God was preparing a plan that you would walk in that one day he would show you his love and you would experience that love, not just in knowledge, but in your heart. And it would explode in such a way that you recognized, surely my salvation rests in being given freely by God. Romans chapter 5 or 6 that says that while we were still weak, weak being incapable of reaching out to God, when we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 says this way simpler even. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 says that this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. God loved us and changed us so that we could love God. 
God's grace is seen in coming to awaken our dead bodies in the same way that someone who is an EMT trained person would come and use a defibrillator, move it with their hands like this, say clear and wake them up. The way that he's expressed himself is someone who verse five makes people alive and alive together in a permanent way and through a permanent power, not just a random exciting power, but the power even to raise people to from death to life. The power was so powerful that we're made together alive with Christ. The point is that his power was so powerful that it raised Christ himself from the dead. And that power has been given to you in knowing and believing in the gospel that God has freely given himself to you. And if you recognize that, it's because you've been made alive together with Christ. John 3.16. We say it so often, we don't really think the kind of amazing purpose that it is explaining. We just say it very quickly. So God so loved the world that he gave his own. We kind of just say it. But listen to every single word that it's saying. God so loved the world that. God so loved the world that the evidence of that love would be this, that he would give his only son. We don't even like giving away the last chip in a bag of chips to somebody. And God gave his only son. He had one son and he gave him and that son freely went. And even though in the future we're going to learn why that is, through faith alone and grace alone, we're going to learn why Christ had to die. But the point you need to know now is that Christ did have to die, and he willingly was sent and willingly went to die to explain the Father wants to love you forever. Not because you deserve it. Not because we are lovely. And not because he needed something from us, that we needed to do something. All of that love was given. Because when people are saved to one day worship him forever, it delights him that their hearts recognize his love and that that love and that recognition of that love and that grace would last forever. And so in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, he explains it simply by saying this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. If there was something about your loveliness or something you did to earn salvation, then you would be able to brag about getting saved. And we don't. And why is that? Because we are so unimportant in getting ourselves saved, so much so that it actually glorifies God so that God may be able to boast in his own glory by explaining his great grace towards undeserving sinners. The question, of course, at the end of every kind of sermon, every kind of explanation of that is to recognize, what do we do with that? If I want to experience this, if I feel like I, I get this and I'm, I'm feeling something about wanting to believe this or that I do believe this and I want to do something about it, what do I do? More importantly, if you've never, ever thought that this is important at all, and you're thinking you recognize it, and you're trying to figure out how do I respond to it so that I can be assured that this was all for me, what do I do? 
I hope that I can do this as simply as possible. Number one is you need to realize that this grace is possible. The easiest thing you can do, I think the most natural thing to do is say that's too good to be true. And that's why it's explained so thoroughly in the Bible, because it's not too good to be true. It is very, very, very much in the wheelhouse of God's ability to do something and to do something so great and so abundantly that he would do something so gracious that it's beyond the realm of any love that we know and better than any gift that we would know that he would explain it so thoroughly and make it so bright and clear in our hearts that it would dissuade us from anything the world has to give us and draw us directly for him. So you need to know that that love is possible. To quote John Owen again, actually, the worst thing you could do is say that it's not possible and say it is too good to be true. The way he explained it is that if you are troubled about the Father's love, understand that you can no more trouble or burden him than by your unkindness in not believing it. Not believing the gospel, rejecting the gospel, saying it's too good to be true, actually does disservice to God. You recognizing how good he is to give this free gift for free. That is actually a recognition that God wants you to have. It is very much possible. And the second thing is you need to understand that this grace is personal. This grace is given for you. I could very easily spend the next 10 minutes just looking at every single one of you in the eye and saying your name, and I'm not going to do that. But let me say, even by preaching this, looking at every single one of you, you need to know that this gospel is personal. It is for you specifically. This pastor you may have heard of, his name is C.H. Spurgeon. He's an excellent pastor. He wrote a whole book on this subject called All of Grace. And one of the things I love about him is that no matter how hard his life became and no matter how many things he went back to, no matter how many amazing truths about God that he continued to learn and he became an expert in, the basic gospel, the first thing that saved him was always something that blew his heart wide open. It was always that thing that awoke him and made him ask the question, but why? This is the way he explained it, and the quote is on the screen for you so you can follow along. I know that it is to me, even to this day, the greatest wonder that I have ever heard of, that God should ever justify me. I feel myself to be a lump of unworthiness, a mass of corruption, and a heap of sin, apart from his almighty love. I know by full assurance that I am treated as if I had been perfectly just and made an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. And yet, by nature, I must take my place among the most sinful. I, who am altogether undeserving, I am treated as if I had always been deserving and I am loved with as much love as if I had always been godly when formerly I was ungodly. Who can help being astonished at this? The simple question is not, do you know this information? The question is, are you astonished by this information? Does it seem too good to be true? But it is very much true because God himself said it was true. The attitude we are supposed to have in grace is that it is the only way by which we are saved, but it is so miraculous that God uses his power in that message to awaken dead hearts 
to life with him, which lasts forever. And that is what we mean by saying that we were saved by grace alone, that we could not save ourselves. We were incapable and did not want to. But God freely desired to pour out his love on us undeservedly. And that is, we will learn next week that we take that not by earning it, but by believing it in faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for holding us to the point that we can come to you in nothingness, in unworthiness and unloveliness, and we can discover the fact that even though we are dead, enslaved, and justly condemned by you, you have made a way for sinners to be saved. And when we ask why that it is simply because you are a God of love. You are a God who desires to demonstrate his love profoundly and amazingly through raising dead sinners to life. Lord, our only prayer is that you would astonish us by this, that we would recognize this for the miracle that it is and the good grace that you have demonstrated to us in showing us your love in scripture. And that by it alone is the only way that we might be saved. Lord, let us be astonished by this. Let us be bewildered by this. Let us wonder at this grace, but know that it is very much for us. And let us personally reach out and confess that we have been sinners, but you have loved us regardless. Thank you for this, Lord. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. If you have any questions about any of this, you're more than welcome to talk to me. I also want to let you know, as I've told you before, that uh, at the end of this series, we're going to have a night where we just do a Q&A about all of the questions you have. So if you have questions, give them to me. And I actually won't be the ones answering them. What I want to tell you is that when we're finished the series, we're actually going to have a Q&A, not with me, but with Pastor Josh and with Pastor Isaiah. They both agreed to actually come here and basically sit down. I don't know if we'll have comfy chairs or normal chairs, but we're going to sit them down and we're going to have all of your questions and give them your questions and they're going to answer them. And so that's how we want to spend because this particular series might come with it lots of questions. But even if you have questions outside of this series, uh, write them down, bring them to me, email them to me, tell any of the leaders about them, uh, and then we can keep them and then we'll ask those questions at uh, the end of the series. So if you have those questions, um, please give them to me. And with that, if you have any questions right now, you can also ask your small group leaders. We're going to meet in small groups. So uh, we will meet with those now. Oh, thank you. Yeah, in the guitar. And uh, where is it at? The one in the guitar or the one? Oh, nice. And we have three picks. That's that is lots of picks. Thank you.